And there's a ton of toxicological uh, research and biological research that shows major problems with vaccines in certain children. Welcome to the What Up Doc University podcast, your number one resource for total body wellness. Here's your host, Dr. Mike. Hey, aloha, aloha. This is your doc, Dr. Mike Okuchi from What Up Doc University podcast, whatupdocuniversity.com. Hope you guys are having a great day today. We are in for a treat with today's episode. It's a little bittersweet with this episode um, just because we're talking about a really sensitive subject on the passing of SB 277, the mandate vaccination law here in uh, California. And, uh, you know, it's it's a historical event where now uh, a medical procedure is now being mandated upon all um, all children going to public schools in California. And uh, we have a very special guest uh, I went to school with. This doctor, uh, he's a phenomenal, really phenomenal guy, really smart, and he's uh, he's on the forefront of of um, chiropractic pediatrics and uh, the forefront of childhood vaccinations. Um, and I kind of want to preface this whole episode with with saying that um, a lot of people a lot of people say, you know, well, uh, if you're not if you're not advocating vaccinations, you're anti-vaccines. And that's not what we're about. Um, you know, you, you'll hear in the episode where we talk about vaccines and there is efficacy towards vac- vaccines. Um, but it's not necessarily about that. And, and the whole idea behind the passing of this, this bill is not that we don't want vaccinations anywhere. It's we want to remain autonomous in our medical choices because this creates a slippery slope effect where who knows what's down the road with um, the, our choices being taken away for our health. And that's the whole issue that, that we're talking about today surrounding SB 277. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to let you listen to this episode, part one. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Up Doc University podcast. It's Dr. Mike. I'm here today with a special guest, uh, Dr. Tyson Perez out in San Diego. And today we're going to be talking about a heated subject that's just recently hit uh, California. And uh, and, and everybody, you, you may know about this by now. You know, it's SB 277 where they now mandated that all, all children who want to attend uh, public schools have to be vaccinated, and it's been a heated subject uh, for for some time now. But but recently, it's come into light in in uh, not just in California but nationwide. And uh, here we have uh, Dr. Tyson to kind of go over um, what's what's surrounding this and all this kind of stuff. Um, Tyson and I actually went to school together. Uh, we you know we cut our teeth out in Whittier. Uh, at Los Angeles College of Chiropractic, uh, learning about the chiro- the great profession of chiropractic. Um, Tyson, how are you doing today? Hey, Dr. Mike, I'm doing great. 
So um, tell, let's just start. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, your history and then uh, how you got into chiropractic. Sure. So um, I went to university up in Canada, so I got to experience Canada for a while. So I consider myself half Canadian. Uh, <laughs> after Canada, I came down and, and went to obviously uh, school with you down at LACC, where I graduated um, with my chiropractic degree. And following that, I, I served as a professor of neurological diagnosis um, nice. for one of the po- postgraduate programs. And I just, you know, with chiropractic, we specialize in neurology and, and it, I just fell in love, you know, with everything about it in the chiropractic school and in the, um, and then the teaching aspect of it. And then I shifted over into private practice and I moved down to San Diego area. I'm actually in Carlsbad, California. Nice. And I own, I own Elevation Family Chiropractic and I specialize primarily in pediatric. Um, I see families as well, but, you know, a good large portion of my practice is actually pediatric practice. And, you know, I just love it. And it's a, it's a super big challenge, but I just, you know, I, I can't imagine doing anything else. And that's where I'm at right now. Cool. Let, let's uh, talk about that for a little bit, uh, you know, because a lot of people think about chiropractic and they think, hey, you know what, I've been into a car accident or I got some neck pain, low back pain. Um, you know, that's when I go in and maybe seek out chiropractic care. But you're treating children. So tell us a little bit about why are you why should even children be adjusted sure so first of all what i do is anytime anybody asks me what i do i I don't introduce myself as a chiropractor i introduce myself as a pediatric chiropractor Mm. and that kind of takes them back a little bit right Mm. because it it starts the questioning rather than you probably experience this too when you tell somebody you're a chiropractor say oh my back hurts or my neck right but but when i say pediatric chiropractors are like what like why would you see kids Mm. and it starts it starts the whole conversation rolling and the reason why I do see kids and predominantly kids is because what we're looking at is their neurological function. So chiropractic is not about back and neck pain. It's about neurological function and being able to adapt to the different stresses of life. And children have stresses just like adults do. Um, if they're born by C-section, if they get a lot of antibiotics, if they get a lot of vaccines, um, if mom is stressed during the pregnancy, those things can actually affect ch- the children's development and their neurological function. So what I do is very state-of-the-art neuroscans in my practice to see if there's any short circuits or neurological dysfunction within these children. And if so, I use really gentle adjustments to restore those connections between the brain and the body so that they're able to express uh, their function optimally and they're able to thrive in the world. And, you know, it's a very different adjustment from an adult adjustment. And I always explain that to the parents as well, because you know, maybe they've been adjusted before or they've seen something on TV. So I have to explain how different it is with a pediatric adjustment versus an adult adjustment. But once they see how gentle it is and how effective it is, then, uh, you know, they, the whole family usually jumps on board. <laughs> yeah, I think that's one of the things that, that parents kind of get, get, you know, a little bit scared of is, hey, you know what, are you adjusting, uh, you know, my child, if not, you know, a newborn, uh, the exact same way that you're adjusting me, you know, and it's totally different, a totally different approach, totally different way of, of, of uh, practicing. Um, But obviously, you're looking at you're looking for the same result, right, which is optimizing the nervous system. Exactly right. So whether the child comes in who's symptomatic, so a lot of times they'll come in with issues like acid reflux or constipation, asthma. Um, you know, I have a lot of kids on the autism spectrum. 
you know, if they're coming in with symptoms or even if they're asymptomatic, it doesn't really matter to me. What, what I do is I look at neurological function and mm. if there's any, any kind of problem with that neurological function, I use very high tech tests. So I'm not just guessing on this. I'm, I'm using very high tech scans. Then I will adjust the child symptomatic or asymptomatic. It doesn't yeah. matter to me. But I want them to be functioning optimally no matter what. And you made an important point right there, right? Is it's symptomatic or asymptomatic? It doesn't really matter, right? You know, because people think that they need to bring their kid in or they need to bring themselves in only when they feel something, right? And that's not necessarily the case, especially with neurological functioning. For sure, that's that tends to be our culture, right? Is you know we wait till there's a major problem going on and then we go see somebody for help. Uh, I noticed that in particular with the men in in uh. In right. culture. You know, I, I'm, I, I've done that too. I, I'm right. the same way. If there's a problem, we'll wait till it's really bad and then go see somebody. I, I tend to see that the moms are much more proactive. Mm-hmm. And because of the internet in particular and all the education that's out there through groups like the ICPA, which is the International Chiropractic Pediatric Association, moms are now being very proactive and bringing their newborns in um, to get checked, not necessarily adjusted. I don't adjust everybody, but I check everybody to see if they need an adjustment. Yeah. So they're, they're bringing them in, you know, right. I've actually, in fact, been to, uh, been asked to come to some hospitals right after the birth in order to check the child. That's awesome. We need, we need more of that in our culture, you know, uh, because, um, I, I know you see it, I see it, uh, th- there's so much issues going around, uh, in the healthcare system, uh, you know, and, and this whole thing with, that's coming about, you know, with SB 277 and, and this mandating of things, uh, we're seeing a shift, you know, as far as the acceptance of of what we're considering healthcare and all that kind of stuff. So, like, with that said, like, let's start with um, tell everybody what is or what this whole thing with the SB 277, what is that about? Yeah, so SB 277 is, SB stands for Senate Bill, Senate Bill 277. It was just passed here in California by Governor Brown. He just signed it. It was either yesterday or the day before. I can't remember. There's been so much going on with it. Um, But essentially what it does is it mandates that any child who wants to attend either public or private school here in California Mm -hmm. must be up to date on their vaccinations. No exceptions except, well, there's one exception, a medical exemption. So you, if a medical doctor or an osteopathic doctor says that, yes, this child should not have certain vaccines, then potentially they can get a medical exemption. But I'll tell you what, I've had a lot of experience with parents coming in telling me they went to their medical doctor, went to their pediatrician, and the pediatrician refused to sign the exemption for them, um, medical or otherwise. Because just before this bill passed, we, we also had philosophical exemptions where they had to go to the MD or DO and get them to sign off that they've been educated, that they had educated the parents and they think, okay, the parents have been educated. Now I'll sign off on this because the parent knows the risk and the benefits. So even when that was in place, there were still pediatricians unwilling to sign the philosophical exemption. Now with the medical exemption in place, I know for a fact, because I just talked to two MDs, that they are very hesitant to sign these medical exemptions because they're afraid that either their board, the, the medical board, or the public health departments will come after their license if they write excessive exemptions. So it's very troubling what's going on here. And so California, there's only two other states like California now. That's Mississippi and West Virginia. 
those are the California, Mississippi, and West Virginia are the only three states in the U.S. that only have a medical exemption in place. The other states either have religious and/or philosophical exemptions as well. So, what are you seeing some of the issues surrounding this? Like, like what? One, why? Why is it coming about? Um, first of all, let's let's, let's talk a step back. Like, why did it even start? You know, why are they mandating something like this, like a vaccine? And then, what are some of the other issues surrounding it? Right. Well, I think the the big spark to this whole thing was the Disneyland measles outbreak. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, everybody got hyped up in the media. Everybody got freaked out about this, and then, you know, th- this started going forward. Um, you know, with the Disneyland measles outbreak, there's measles has always been around in the United States. There's never been a year where there haven't been a few dozen to a few hundred cases, but you know, when it comes to Disneyland, it's very high profile. So they were able to really push this through the media. Everybody got really scared. And so they started pushing this bill through, you know, keep in mind that a majority of those who came down with measles during the Disneyland measles outbreak were adults. Right. So we're not even talking about kids here. We're talking about a majority of these people being adults, but they're still going after the kids for these vaccine mandates. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you look at the data. Um, But, you know, it's a lot of good marketing and a lot of people are scared. And especially in the United States, when people haven't seen a lot of measles recently or in the last you know, few decades. You know, people are, are very scared about it. You look, you look back at some of the old shows, like the Brady Bunch. I remember watching a clip. They just joked about it. Oh, you have measles. You have to stay home today. You know, and oh, the rest of the Brady Bunch got measles. And, they're, you know, they're just hanging out at home. They're, you know, they're not going to the hospital. Nobody's freaking out. It's mm-hmm. just a, a common viral illness that kids used to go through. And because people aren't seeing that anymore, and, you know, they hear a lot of this marketing and this hype about measles, how it's potentially deadly and, and all this crap, really, um, they're, they're really scared. So that's what's going on. The Disneyland measles outbreak was, was really what triggered this thing. And, uh, it's just kind of taken on a life of its own right now. Yeah. You see the, the power of the media, you know, I, I, I remember when it came out and, um, there was like a, an article written out, I think it was like time magazine. And the, and the headline was like 150 or some 140 people with uh, measles and all that kind of stuff. And you dig into the research and it was somewhat, I think, out of 140 or whatever, I think it was like 40 something were cases that were in Disneyland. And it's like the rest of them were like some other places in the United States. But they lump into get a number to kind of give it a little bit more precedence and, and, and really dig into people's psyche, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The media does a good job at spinning things for so, sure. Like, <laughs> what, but like, why? Why are they trying to do this? Like, why such a heavy mandate? You know, because it's like there's no choice now, right? I mean, that's the whole issue around this is is it we're taking away a medical choice. You know, it's not like it's not like it, there's it's mandatory that you need to breathe air or or you know something that's physiological, right? It's you need to get this vaccine, and you know, so let's take that into consideration. But the other aspect of um, what does vaccines even do? So in general, just to give you a basic, your listeners, a basic understanding of what vaccines do, essentially they stimulate an immune response intended to prevent the onset of symptoms when you get infected with a certain bacteria or virus. Mm-hmm. It's not that vaccines, understand this, it's not that vaccines don't work, okay? Right. right. Vaccines can generate an immune response in which case that they can potentially prevent or decrease the symptoms 
and or prevent or decrease the chance of getting infected with certain bacteria or viruses. Mm-hmm. The pro- but it's very different from natural immunity. So there's, there's, there's a couple different camps, right? The pro-vaccine camp. Yeah. And then there's what I consider myself to be in, the pro-natural immunity camp. Okay. Right. So when you look at the difference between what vaccines do and what natural immunity does, they're vastly different. Vaccine-induced immunity is, if it, if it happens at all, it's very short-lived relative to naturally induced immunity. We've seen that with the Faroe Island studies and, and different studies mm-hmm. have looked at, at the length of time that somebody is actually immune from certain illnesses like measles, right? So the, the vaccine can induce some immunity for a short period of time, but not, nothing like natural immunity can do. Natural immunity is much, much longer and much, much more robust, as well as you have to take into account the potential adverse effects when you are introducing these microorganisms in a, in a relatively unnatural manner, right? Because how is measles normally contracted? Through the mucous membranes, right? It, it travels within the air. Uh, people, they take it into their nose or through their mouth, and that's how they become infected. Whereas we're introducing it in, with an injection, you know, mm-hmm. underneath the skin, and it's a very different route of exposure. So there are potential adverse consequences when you do that. Um, as well, here's the biggest thing that I don't think anybody talks about or very few people talk about is the potential for beneficial outcomes of infection. So everybody sees microorganisms and they're scared to death of germs, right? We have a very germophobic uh, culture here. But there's a potential benefit to actually being infected with some of these microorganisms, particularly these viral infections. We've seen decreases in chronic illness with people that are infected with things like measles, chickenpox, mumps. Um, there's shown that those people actually have a decreased risk of things like asthma and chronic kidney disease and cancer because it stimulates the immune system and it actually trains the immune system. It's just like a child. You know, do you want your child to fall and hurt themselves and scratch their knee? No, but they have to go through that process of standing up and walking and falling and getting back up in order to learn and develop normally. If we, if we didn't let them do that, we would be inhibiting the normal growth and development. The same thing happens with the immune system. If you don't allow the immune system to be able to be exposed to these microorganisms in a natural manner, you are inhibiting the function of the immune system and you're inhibiting its development, which has very potential long-term consequences as that individual gets older and exposes them to a higher risk of chronic diseases like cancer, like we talked about. Mm. Yeah, you know, some people... Some people think, you know, well, uh, oh, I, I, I should actually take that back. I, I think some people don't think, and then that's the reason why, you know, we just kind of walk into our doctor's office and we, and, and we immediately go along with what they're telling us, right? You know, uh, I, I remember when we had, we had our first, our first child, um, it was just kind of like a reflex action where the nurse would, would come in and say, hey, you know, we got to get the, the baby their shots and all this kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, we kind of looked at them and says, oh, we're not. And the books that we get were like, like death stares, you know. And I know that there's a lot of, lot of parents who listen to, to this podcast that are, are going through, have gone through the same issue. So why do you think that that there's this knee jerk reaction with the whole with vaccines um, for for newborns? 
Well, first of all, there's a reverence to the white coat, right? There's a reverence that these doctors have been through medical school and they know more than the parents could ever know. Sure. And that, that's kind of the belief with the parents when they go in there. Um, that's changing, though. Yeah, that's changing. There's <laughs> Parents are realizing that they know a lot more than their right. pediatricians in many cases. But in general, yes, that's, that's the general attitude. Now, I, I've done a lot of workshops and, and lectures on vaccines. I've lectured with pediatricians. They mm-hmm. will tell me, and they, they will tell the class point blank, that they have very little training in vaccines during medical school. They learn what vaccines to administer, what the vaccines are supposed to do, and, and you know, when to give them, essentially. They don't learn a whole lot about the history of vaccination. They don't necessarily learn a whole lot about the toxicology aspect of vaccination, which is huge, which we can talk about if you want. And they don't learn a whole lot about the actual immunological response to vaccines. So they, they learn very basically that vaccines are great, disease is bad, and we need to vaccinate these kids on time, um, but not a whole lot beyond that. And I, I have pediatricians that will <laughs> that are friends of mine um, up in Orange County, as a matter of mm. fact, that will t- tell you the exact same thing. So there's, some pediatricians are, are very well-versed. I, there are some that do their homework, but by and large, I haven't found them very well-educated. I wasn't very well-educated, by the way, when we went through our schooling, right? We didn't have a lot on vaccination. I don't even remember any classes on vaccination. Um, I remember some pharmacology classes, but not really anything on vaccination. We and, had that. We had that like one. I think it was like one day or maybe a week, <laughs> and, and it got heated. I I remember. I forget which professor oh. w- was was teaching. Uh, okay. I, I I really don't remember, but I remember it got really heated where uh, it was it was basically him against us, and that's that was the debate where they were very like everybody needs to get vaccinated and the rest of the students were like well what the science that you were telling us previously doesn't match up you know with everything that you're that you're saying here you know you're you're telling us that we need to stimulate the immune system through an adjustment and then yet you're saying hey we're giving enough vaccine to stimulate an, an immune response and all that kind of stuff and they got very heated and and i think they killed it after like a day or so Oh, really? Okay. I don't remember that. Um, but yeah, needless to say that we got very little, um, very little training on vaccines in school, just like most medical doctors do. Um, so my, my journey actually began once my wife, got, I'd, I'd been researching it a little bit, but I didn't really dive into it until my wife mm-hmm. got pregnant. Right. And when my wife, well, I got pregnant, we went to a Bradley class and okay. when they found out, when they found out what I did, they're like, they had so many questions on vaccines. I was like, okay. I need to teach a workshop, right? So I scheduled a workshop um, and just dove into the science. I mean, I was, I was literally studying this stuff 40 hours a week. And, um, and so, you know, when I did the, the initial workshop, I was very well-versed on the science. And by the way, when I look at the literature, I look at both sides. One of the very first books that I read was called the CDC's Pink Book. Mm. It's a book that's put out specifically for physicians regarding vaccines by the CDC. And as we know, the CDC is very pro-vaccine, right? They have patents and everything on these, and they recommend vaccines, and they recommend a schedule. So that's one of the first books I've read. So I'm not just reading, you know, one side or another. I'm looking at the entire picture. And after looking at the entire picture, I was very, very grounded in what we decided with our daughter. Our daughter is vaccine-free. We have no qualms about that. I'm very confident in that. When I was a child, I was fully vaccinated according to their schedule, right? It was a much lesser schedule than it is yeah. now. Yeah. In fact, 
and I, I talk about this when I do my lectures, I was vaccinated in chiropractic school when we did our rotations through the different medical clinics. You know, remember that, the internship? Yeah. I got um, th- three Hep B and one MMR vaccines because I, I didn't really know any better. I just, oh, okay, this is what you do. You know, let's go for it. So I, I looked back at my the the immun- what's called the immunization record, yeah. and it shows three Hep B vaccines and one MMR shot. So, you know, I went through the whole thing. I I didn't know much about it until I really started to do the research for myself. And there's a lot out there, um, but you have to look around the corner. You can't just look at the government stuff out there because it's very one-sided. Sure. Uh, you have to look at a lot of the independent studies. And there's a ton of toxicological uh, research and biological research that shows major problems with vaccines in certain children. So, yeah, it's, it's a very uh, very heated topic for sure. And parents, you know, if they don't do their, their research when they go into the doctor's office, they're oftentimes a little bit overwhelmed. They're scared and they kind of defer to what the pediatrician, you know, who's the supposed expert, recommends. Um, but I find that those parents that do that with their initial child, once they start educating themselves, they change what they do in their subsequent children. So probably 99 out of 100 parents that I've seen, if they vaccinated, they vaccinated their first one or early on, but their subsequent children are no longer vaccinated or on a delayed schedule. Rarely have I ever seen a parent go from, no vaccines or a delayed schedule to a full schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, that that just rarely happens. I've only ever I only remember one case of that in, in my entire career, and that that's happened. So most of the time it goes the other way once parents get educated. You were talking about the toxicology behind it all, and uh, you know, whenever people bring up vaccines, they often bring up the uh, the the topic of autism. Um, you know, uh, I think, what is that, Jenny McCarthy and Jim Carrey, they were very <laughs> big on the whole idea that, hey, you know, we're, we're anti-vaccine because it's, it's, it is the definite cause of, um, of autism. Uh, and then you got the other side of the spectrum where you got these guys that are, are patent holders for the vaccines, you know, Dr. Paul Offit and all these guys where they're like, there is absolutely no science that supports that vaccines cause injuries. Um, let's talk about a little bit about that. Sure. Um, so the toxicology aspect of it. So when I look at vaccines and, and when I discuss vaccines, I, I discuss them from a neurological perspective. That's because that's our specialty and that's, that's what I do. Uh, you know, I specialize in neurology and neurodevelopment. So when I look at them, I look at them through that lens of neurology. There was a great study done by Dr. Boyd Haley. He's a PhD um, chemist at the University of Kentucky. And what he did is he looked at trimerosol, which is um, a type of mercury found in vaccines, and he compared it to aluminum and antibiotics, okay? And he put them on human neural tissue to see what would happen. Now, what do we know about trimerosol, aluminum, and antibiotics? Well, we know that all three of those components are in vaccines, you know, and what, not all of them, not all vaccines contain all three, but if you get the entire schedule, you're mm. going to get a dose of thimerosal, you're going to get um, some aluminum, and you're definitely going to get some antibiotics. Yeah. So he compared those three on human neural tissue. This was in 2005, a study that he did. He found that aluminum and antibiotics were slightly neurotoxic. He found that thimerosal, which is also known as ethyl mercury, was significantly more neurotoxic than either aluminum or the antibiotics. 
Now, here's the interesting part. When he combined the mercury with the aluminum or the mercury with the antibiotics, there was a synergistic effect, in which case a greater, much greater number of those neurons were killed when he combined the two together. Now, when he combined all three, 100% of the neurons died. So when he combined mercury with aluminum with antibiotics, 100% of the neurons in the culture died. So there was a synergistic effect. So when you hear individuals talking about things like, oh, there's such a small amount of this or this, and it's a safe level, that, that what they don't understand is synergistic toxicity, meaning that these elements can combine within the body to have a much greater effect than they would on their own. Um, the other thing that he found, and this is the other part of the interesting study, was that if he put thimerosal on human neural tissue and added estrogen to it, which is the female hormone, primary female hormone, it protected the neurons. But when he put thimerosal on the neural tissue and added testosterone, it enhanced the effect of the thimerosal. So what does that indicate? It indicates that males may be at a much greater rate for neurotoxicity from a lot of these vaccine ingredients. And what do we know about autism? We know that autism is about four times higher in males than it is in females. Right. So that, that may be a very good indicator of why, one of the reasons why males are much more likely to be triggered into these autistic-like uh, symptoms following a course of vaccines. Now, understand, I don't believe that vaccines are the only cause of autism. I think the etiology of autism is multifactorial. But vaccines can absolutely trigger these behavioral signs of autism because vaccines can cause neuroinflammation, neurotoxicity, and lead to the result of what people would diagnose as autism, which is just a behavioral diagnosis. So I have, you know, there's plenty of research out there. You just, you got to dig through the research and not just the bullet points, you know, the, the marketing. When you really look at the research, the research is there. And my biggest concern these days is, is the aluminum. And there's huge amounts of aluminum now in the, in the vaccines and, and you know, it's, it's going up. Although the mercury has gone, they've taken the mercury down to some, ex, to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the aluminum has gone up. So there, there's, there's a lot of factors to look at. You mean such a great point is that the general public has to do their own research. They have to dig for themselves rather than just taking the, the word of, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, the medical doctor who's, who's basically the marketer. Uh, for for the product, um, because you, you look at where we are as a society, as far as our health, and it's pretty poor. You know, I look at I look at the statistics every day, and it's it's like we're doing a pretty poor job in our healthcare system um, to to do something for our the general public, and then now you bring in the whole issue where. You're now mandating something that's going to further along create toxicity and, and more diseases uh, with the efforts of trying to prevent these diseases. It just doesn't make sense. So uh, for me, I don't, I don't get it. You know, I don't get it. Um, I, I, it maybe there's an ulterior motive. I don't know. Uh, what, what have you found, like the whole idea of trying to push this mandate? Well, that was part one. Hopefully you guys got some great information from that and you guys took some great notes. Um, if you guys need to refresh it, go back, listen to it again. There's a lot of great points that Dr. Tyson brought up 
and a lot of things for you guys to think about. You know, do your research, get more information on, on the topics that we're discussing here. Now, uh, if you got some value from this, please like, subscribe, share this podcast with all your friends and family, and let's get the word out there. Um, stay tuned for part two of this, where we're going to complete the rest of the interview that we had with Dr. Tyson. Till then, aloha and be well. <laughs>